Tiki Hut Media. Pop the top on your favorite beer or whatever you drink from Tiki Hut Media. This is Soul Ramblings with Jerry Wicker. Hey there, welcome into Soul Ramblings Podcast. I'm Jerry. Got my beer cracked open. I'm drinking a Yingling today. Invite you to pop open whatever you drink, whether it be a Yingling like me or whatever you drink. And let's talk about faith and life for the next several minutes on the Soul Ramblings Podcast. Hebrews chapter 12, the very first verse says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. So we see here the writer is imagining that our Christian life is like a race. I call it a race of faith. The Christian life is like a race because it has a beginning in trusting Jesus, and it has an end when we die if Jesus does not return first. And it requires effort and perseverance to keep going. But it offers the prize of eternal life to all those who successfully complete it. Now, life has got a bunch of obstacles, suffering, disappointment. The race is a marathon, not a sprint. And it's hard to maintain our faith. It's hard to keep going. It's easy to give up because so many people do. But the fact is that some of those obstacles, some of the things that make the Christian life hard, come from inside us. They are the things that hinder and the sin that so easily entangles. By the things we do and the choices we make, we make it hard for ourselves to keep a close walk with Jesus and a genuine and fervent love for God. Like someone trying to run in a suit or carrying an unnecessary burden, the writer urges us to throw these things off, to get rid of them, to unburden ourselves with these things that are holding us back because we're better off without them. And I believe that if we jump down in that Hebrews chapter 12 to verses 14 to 17, we see the writer mentions or is referring to some of these things that hinder us, some of the sins that entangle us, the things that offer us some small temporary earthly gain in exchange for an eternal heavenly loss. In verse 14, for example, he says, make every effort to live in peace with all people. Now, we all hate war. We all are troubled and angry and disgusted by Russia's recent invasion of Ukraine. We want Mr. Putin to change his mind, or we want his people, his own people, to rise up against him and to throw him out of power. But sadly, we tolerate strife in our own lives, and sometimes we contribute to it with our selfishness or our judgmental spirit or our love of gossip or our habit of making up reasons why people do things when we don't know all the facts or our arrogance that believes that we have all the answers or our unwillingness to work with others if we're not in control or our insistence that others would be better off if they followed our advice. Make every effort, he says, because although peace is often desirable, you wouldn't think it by the way people carry on. Peace is something we need to pursue, to chase after, because it's not always close to hand and at our beck and call. And to be honest, we can't control how other people react. We can be as gentle as doves, and others will just keep on stirring up the drama. All we can do 
is take responsibility for our own choices and our own actions. And the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 12, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Our Lord Jesus was a man of peace. He gave himself to bring us peace, peace with God, peace with ourselves, peace with each other. And he calls us to be people of peace. Back to Hebrews, the writer says, make every effort to be holy without holiness. No one will see the Lord. Above all other things, the Lord is holy. It describes everything that makes him God in his almighty, inconceivable, and eternal glory. But his holiness is most clearly seen in his love, his love for us, the love for which he made us, the love which he commands from us. For us mere mortals, to be holy means to be single-mindedly devoted to the Lord and to reflect his love in our love for him and for others. What do the commandments ask of us? To love God with all our heart and to love our neighbor as ourselves. What did the prophet Micah say was what the Lord required? Not sacrifice, not rivers of blood, but to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. That's holiness. Without this, we will not see the Lord. For without this love for him and for each other, we do not really want to see the Lord. With our unholiness, we oppose everything that is good and right and true. With our unholiness, we tear down what God is building, and we wound what God is healing. It's hard, yes. We must make every effort, though. But holiness is not something optional. Jesus gave himself for our holiness, that we might be consecrated to God and belong to him with all our heart, and that we might reflect his love with our love. Without this we will not see him. We may think we're running the race of faith, but without holiness, we are running in the wrong direction. And then in Hebrews 12, verse 15, the writer says, see to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. This bitter root, I believe, is resentment. For the fact remains that none of us are perfect. Sometimes we hurt others and sometimes we are hurt by others. In this kind of environment, we need to be quick to apologize, eager to make amends, and sincere in forgiving, because hurt pride and unacknowledged injustice create fertile ground for resentment to germinate and grow, and once it takes root, it's harder to get rid of that than couch grass in the garden. Don't miss the grace of God that sacrificed so much for your forgiveness and holiness. Take responsibility for resolving your broken relationships, because when you are only 50% to blame for the problem, you are still 100% responsible for the solution. And don't let your resentment overflow to recruit others to your cause to fight your battles for you, because that would defile many. Stop the fight before it becomes a war. Then we move on to verse 16. See that no one is sexually immoral. Now, you would think that the way some Christians carried on that the sexual sins are the worst of all, the only unforgivable sins, that a man can beat his wife and abuse his children and cheat his customers as long as he doesn't get caught cheating on his wife. A young woman who becomes pregnant unexpectedly doesn't need to be judged or ostracized by the community. What she needs is to be loved and cared for, for her welfare and for that of her child. Sexual sins are not the worst sins because there are no worst sins. 
The most minor sins are still a slap in the face of our Heavenly Father and a deep wound in His purpose for the world. And that's why sexual purity is so important, because it is the surest sign of a person's maturity that they can harness their desires and pleasures for good rather than evil and for the glory of God and not for our temporary satisfaction. Sexual purity tests all our virtues. It tests whether we love what is good and what is best. It tests our faithfulness to our spouses and to our neighbors. It tests our self-control, whether we can master our urges or are mastered by them. It tests our hope in a future eternal blessing rather than an instant temporary pleasure. That's why even if it isn't the most important thing, sexual purity is still an important thing. See to it that none of you are sexually immoral. Or, godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Now, what Jacob did was wrong. Nothing I say is meant to minimize his wrong against his brother. But what Esau did was just as wrong. He came home from the hunt hungry, famished, he said, meaning starving, as if he was going to die. His brother Jacob was cooking some stew, lentil stew, which have to be some of the most useless vegetables I've ever heard of. When Esau wanted some of the stew, Jacob offered it to him in exchange for his birthright, which would have been like me offering you $1 for your priceless ring handed down to you from your mother and from her mother and from her mother before her. You would only accept my dollar if you thought your family heirloom was worthless. Esau thought his birthright was worth less than a bowl of stew, worth less than his instant gratification, when with a bit of patience and a bit of self-respect, he could have cooked his own stew and satisfied his hunger and kept his birthright. Why would he have despised his birthright? I can only imagine that it was because he thought it wasn't worth anything compared to what he could gain for himself by his own effort. And what was that birthright? What was his inheritance as the eldest son? It was the promise of God given to Abraham and confirmed to Isaac that the land of Canaan would belong to their descendants and they would be a great nation. Esau considered the future promise of God worth less than a bowl of stew today. This is his godlessness. It's the same self-sufficiency that motivates many people's choices today, that the promise of something tomorrow is worthless compared to what I need today, and that all my needs can be met by buying them with the money I earn from my job, and if I need it and can't afford it, then the government should provide it for free. It is the goodness that worships the almighty dollar and that sacrifices eternity for the sake of our instant gratification. And it is the same godlessness that can infect God's people. I call it uh, functional atheism. We are functionally atheists when we say we believe in God, but God plays no part in our choices and actions. We do what we want. We plan all the steps to achieve our goals. In our meetings, we may even pray that God would bless our decisions and desires without seeking his will or subjecting all our plans to his desires. Now, we're not atheists. We believe in God. We sing his praise. We even pray to him. We say we do everything for him, but his presence in our life makes no significant difference. Our choices and actions would be exactly the same if we didn't believe in it. This behavior contradicts all the fine things we say we believe, and it cripples our witness to our neighbors because it only confirms them to their unbelief. If Christian people are no different, who would want to be one? 
This godlessness did no good for Esau. Later, he certainly regretted his actions. He sought his birthright with tears. He wished he had made different choices, but he did not add to his regret any genuine remorse or true repentance that takes full responsibility and throws itself at the mercy of God in order to be restored. And this godlessness will do no good for us or for our churches, for our walk with Christ, or for our witness to our neighbors. We must replace our functional atheism with some genuine Christianity. We must throw off these things that hinder us. Let us show ourselves to be followers of the man of peace by becoming people of peace. Let us be holy as our Lord was holy and gave himself for our holiness. Let's root out every bitter root of resentment by being quick to forgive and even quicker to apologize. Let's devote ourselves to sexual purity, not because sexual sins are the worst, but because they are as bad as any other. And let us not be godless, but let all we do and think and say reflect the purposes and plans of God revealed in our Lord Jesus. We'll be right back after this short break. The law firm of Becker and Lindauer represent victims all over the state of Florida. All too often, insurance companies try to convince injured motorists, passengers, pedestrians, and other injured claimants to accept less than their case is worth. Whether it be a car crash, a trucking accident, a motorcycle wreck, a bicycle accident, or an injured pedestrian, it is imperative that you have legal representation to assist you. Becker and Lindauer are dedicated to putting their decades of legal experience to work for you. With proven results, Becker and Lindauer is ready to fight for you. With 45 years of combined experience in personal injury law, the team of Dave and Danielle are highly qualified and ready to help you. Call today for a free consultation, 941-567-6728. Again, area code 941-567-6728. Or visit Becker and Lindauer online at the website in the show notes. Hey, you can get social with us on Soul Ramblings Podcast on Facebook or Instagram. Got links to those pages in the show notes of this episode. Go over there and like us and follow us and leave us a comment. We'd love to hear from you. Always feel free to shoot us an email. That email address is soulramblingspodcast at gmail.com. And be sure to check out our blog too, soulramblingspodcast.wordpress.com. Links to all of those in the show notes. It was on December 1st, 1997, that's 25 years ago, Michael Carneal, a 14-year-old student at Heath High in West Paducah, Kentucky, wrapped a shotgun and a rifle in a blanket and walked into the hallway of his school, passing the long bulk in his arms off as a project he was working on for art class. He also hid a gun in his Jansport backpack. He rode to school with his older sister. At approximately a quarter to eight that morning, Michael Carneal inserted plugs into his ears, pulled out the 22 caliber pistol from his bag, and fired 10 rapid rounds into a group of students who had come to school early that morning and gathered in the hallway just before the bell rang in order to pray. They were literally on their knees when he shot them. Michael Carneal killed three girls and wounded five others. Before the victims were even buried, the surviving members of that prayer group held a vigil where the youth leaders bore witness to what they described as 
the message of the Bible. That message, we forgive you, Mike. Over and over they said, we forgive you, Mike. And I remember reading some of the comments in response to that, and one disgusted person said, that's it, they forgive him? He didn't murder them, we forgive you? That's all? That's what you people believe? Shortly after the school shooting in Paducah, Kentucky, the Wall Street Journal published an op-ed in which the author objected to the immediate gesture of pardon for Michael Carneal from people who were not his primary victims. And the author writes this, I am appalled and frightened by this feel-good doctrine of automatic forgiveness, the author wrote in the Wall Street Journal. This new doctrine destroys Christianity's central moral tenet about forgiveness, that forgiveness can only be given to the sinner by the one against whom he sinned. This flies in the face of what passes for Christianity these days. The declaration often repeated that it is the Christian's duty to forgive just as Jesus forgave those who crucified him. Of course, Jesus asked God to forgive those who crucified him, but Jesus never asked God to forgive those who had crucified thousands of other innocent people, presumably because he recognized that no one has the moral right to forgive evil done to others. You and I have no right, religiously or morally, to forgive Michael Carneal. Only those he sinned against have that right, and those he murdered are dead and therefore cannot forgive him. In fact, if we are to forgive everybody for all the evil they do to anybody, God and his forgiveness are entirely unnecessary. Those who forgive all evil done to others, apart from any of their evil being put to rights, have substituted themselves for God. The Wall Street Journal essay is now a quarter century old, 25 years old, Yet its point is no less urgent or relevant. Just update the name of the transgressor according to today's headlines. How about you and I have no right, religiously or morally, to forgive Vladimir Putin? Only those he has sinned against have that right. And those he murdered are dead, and therefore they cannot forgive him. In fact, those who would forgive him, apart from any of his evil deeds being put to rights, have substituted themselves for God. The late Christopher Hitchens was a public intellectual, and he was known for his atheism. Hitchens' principled unbelief remains an abiding and helpful challenge to the unexamined beliefs of believers. In his book, Letters to a Young Contrarian, Hitchens levies a charge similar to the Wall Street Journal editorial. He writes, The teaching of Christianity, the whole apparatus of absolution and forgiveness, strikes me as positively immoral. He's not wrong. If forgiveness is all there is to Christianity, forgiveness without judgment, absolution apart, any justice, love without any reckoning with sin, then Christianity is immoral. I neglected to mention the title of the Wall Street Journal essay is The Sin of Forgiveness. There's a New Testament scholar, Reginald Fuller, who registers the same point in his book, Interpreting the Miracles, Forgiveness. Fuller insists, is too weak a word for what God does. Forgiveness is too weak a word for what God does. There was a story a couple of weeks ago in the Associated Press where the reporters document how hospital workers handed them scrubs to wear when they arrived to document a story about war crimes. The scrubs were intended as camouflage. The hospital staff warned them 
if they catch you, they will get you on camera and they will make you say everything you filmed is a lie. The crimes they filmed include the shelling of pregnant women and nursing mothers in a maternity hospital, the mass graves of infants, the convoy of Russian mobile crematoriums used by the invading army to hide the inconvenient truth of their own casualties. They also documented the moment when ambulances stopped picking up wounded children because all communication signals by which their parents might call for emergency services had been cut. The indiscriminate shelling of neighborhood streets meant parents could not themselves drive their injured children to the hospital either. Forgiveness is too weak a word for what God does. The journalists explain why Putin's military methodically cut their electricity, water, food supplies, and finally, crucially, the cell phone, radio, and television towers, saying impunity is the goal. With no information coming out of a city, no pictures of demolished buildings and dying children, the Russian forces could do whatever they wanted. If not for us, there would be nothing. That's why we took such risks to be able to send the world what we saw. And that's what made Russia angry enough to hunt us down. Their aim was to act with impunity. Forgiveness is too weak a word. But what's a better word? Ask the average American churchgoer to describe God, and he or she will most certainly first describe God as loving, and that's not wrong. It's thin. It's not wrong. American Christians also commonly characterize God as compassionate, merciful, welcoming, accepting, and, of course, inclusive. Very few, especially white Americans, however, will think to respond to such a question by describing God as just. This is both odd and unfortunate because the revelation of God as a God of justice is such a recurring theme in the Old Testament that we should regard it as the keystone of Israel's faith and thus at the center of the mind of Christ. Anyone who prays the Psalms for any length of time will note their relentless lament that without judgment, without justice, nothing else can flourish. The centrality of God's justice is to be found as early in the scriptures as the book of Genesis, where Abraham appeals to the Lord, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? If there's a single overriding message of the Old Testament prophets, a message we believe Jesus makes flesh and carries with him to the cross, it's something is wrong and must be put right. Indeed, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 21, the Holy Scriptures bear witness that the predicament of fallen humanity is so serious, so grave, so irredeemable that nothing short of divine intervention can rectify it. Rectification. That's a better word. Miroslav Volf is a Croatian theologian at Yale University. His father was tortured in a concentration camp during the Second World War. When the Soviet Union fell and precipitated an ethnic civil war in the former Yugoslavia, Volf was teaching at Evangelical Theological Seminary in his Croatian hometown. The entire seminary had to go into exile. Volf watched, powerless, as TV broadcasts showed Serbian forces destroying the homes of his friends and family, herding people into concentration camps, raping women, burning down churches, and destroying cities. Reflecting on the evil he witnessed and experienced, he wrote, My thesis is that Christian practice requires a belief in divine justice. My thesis will be unpopular with many in the West, 
But imagine speaking to people, as I have, whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters who have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Your point to them, we should not retaliate? We should forgive? I say the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to mete out justice. It takes the quiet of the suburbs for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, the idea will invariably die. Like other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind, if God were not angry at injustice, furious over our lies and deception, and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. What God does, what God promises and purposes to do, is a far stronger word than mere forgiveness. It's the word the Lord proclaims to the prophet Isaiah in chapter 46. After first mocking the gods of Babylon, Baal, and Nebo, whose images must be borne by beasts of burden, the Lord utters a promise to those held in bondage under Babylon. Hearken unto me, O house of Jacob. The Lord summons his people in the King James translation, and all the remnant of the house of Israel. Hearken unto me, ye stout-hearted, that are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It shall not be far off, and my salvation shall not tarry. I bring near my righteousness. It shall not be far off. The Apostle Paul takes up this loaded Old Testament word, righteousness, when he announces that in the coming of Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God is being revealed. I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul writes in his letter to the Romans, for in it the righteousness of God is invading. The free gift given in Christ Jesus to all is for the sake of God's righteousness for all. Paul says, God's righteousness even for the ungodly. Whenever we reduce the gospel to a cliche like God is love or to a cliff note like Christianity is about forgiveness, it's the righteousness of God that is missing. God is love and Christianity is about forgiveness, but love and forgiveness are too weak of words for what the God of the Bible does. For Paul and the prophets, absolutely central to their message is the righteousness of God. Nevertheless, the English word righteousness is so antiquated and religious, it's easy for us to miss entirely the radical scope of the biblical message. Pay attention. The words translated variously in your Bibles as righteousness and justice and judgment and justification and deliverance and rectification, in Hebrew and in Greek, they are all the same word. Righteousness is a noun in English, but in both biblical languages, it functions as a verb. Righteousness is not simply an attribute of God. Righteousness is the activity of God. Righteousness is more than who God is. Righteousness is what God does, and its meaning in the Bible is manifold. God's judgment is God's justice, and God's justice is God's righteousness, and God's righteousness is God's justification. It's all God's rectification. It's all God's work of putting God's world to rights, including you, but hardly only you. Just as forgiveness is too weak a word for what God does, 
so too is the gospel bigger than you. So when Paul declares, I am not ashamed of the good news, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed, he's saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for in it the right-making work of God is being revealed. And when Paul preaches that we are justified by the free gift of the blood of Christ through faith alone, he's saying surpassingly more than what we often hear. He's proclaiming that we are being made more just. We are being rectified through the message of Christ and him crucified. The Apostle Paul is essentially echoing the prophet Isaiah. Hearken unto me, ye stout-hearted that are far from justice. I bring near my justice. It shall not be far off. Notice here in Isaiah 46, the Lord addresses not all of Israel in general, not every single exile in captivity, not everybody in Babylon. The Lord instead speaks a specific promise to a particular people, the remnant of the house of Israel, those who've kept faith and clung tightly to the promise of God. I will be your God and you will be my people. To those particular people, to the faithful remnant, who witnessed their cities plundered and burned and leveled to the ground, who saw their sisters and daughters assaulted and their fathers and brothers attacked and carted off to Babylon, to those who beheld such impunity and yet held on to hope of a better world coming, to that remnant, Yahweh, the Almighty and living Lord, the Holy One of Israel pledges, I am bringing my justice, it is not far off. Justice, judgment, righteousness, Rectification, that is the word for what God does. I read another story in an online newspaper about a Jesuit priest, and uh, this priest serves as the coordinator of military chaplains for the Ukrainian Catholic Church. He's worked as a full-time chaplain with the Ukrainian military since 2014, a year he marks as the true start of Russia's war against his country. Having just returned from the front, where he said his most vivid memory was 10 kilometers of uninterrupted mud, he explained his role as a representative of the church amidst violence and injustice. He said, We priests must help the soldiers choose good, seek truth, contemplate beauty, and pursue justice, not only because these are all essential to preserving their true humanity, but because goodness, truth, beauty, and justice describe the world that is to come, God's kingdom. In a sense, then, I see my role as helping lean the kingdom of heaven toward the soldiers. When we were baptized, we were baptized into a particular, peculiar way of life, a life that renounces the kingdom of this world, a life that resists, as the liturgy used to put it, the devil and all his pomps, a life that conforms, however imperfectly, to the way of the Lamb. We baptize into the way of the Lamb, not because it's in any way a guarantee of happiness. In many ways, my own life is much more complicated than it would have been had I never met Jesus. We are baptized not because this way of life will make us happy or fulfilled, or certainly not because the way of the Lamb is a strategy to rid the world of war and sin, evil and injustice. Any way of life that ends in a cross is not a strategy to make the world a better place, but rather, in a world of war and sin, evil and injustice, we are baptized into the way of the Lamb because this life, this way of life, is the only true and beautiful life that can lean heaven toward this broken world and gesture toward the world our Lord 
has promised is not far off. Forgiveness is only part of what God does. Christ will come back in final victory, and everything broken will be mended. The Creator meets you in creatures of water, wine, and bread in Holy Communion. This is a God worthy of our worship. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, iHeartRadio, TuneIn Radio, wherever you may be listening, be sure to click subscribe so you never miss a new episode of Soul Ramblings Podcast. We'll have our Palm Sunday devotional as we're doing short Lenten devotionals every Sunday during the season of Lent. And we've got Palm Sunday coming up this Sunday. Hope to see you here then. I'm Jerry Wicker. I want to thank you for the gift and privilege of your time today. A lot of podcasts out there, and you could have spent your time today listening to any one of those, and I appreciate you spending your time here with us today. Here's a last piece of advice. If you believe in goodness and if you value the approval of God, fix your minds on whatever is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and praiseworthy. Until next time on Soul Ramblings Podcast, drink responsibly, keep the conversation going. Grace, peace, cheers. Thanks for listening to Soul Ramblings with Jerry Wicker. Download new episodes every week. And if you haven't already, subscribe and be sure to leave us a rating and review. Soul Ramblings is a Tiki Hut Media production. Mm -hmm.